Welcome back to Atlanta Diaries. I'm your host Enma Popley. Thank you for joining me. In Atlanta Diaries, we celebrate unique and inspiring stories of breakthrough women to help future generations create their own. If you want to know more about Atlanta or listen to more episodes, you can visit my website www.enmapopley.com. You can also share feedback or suggestions there. My guest today is Dr. Radha Kesar. Radha is a mathematician and an educator working in the representation theory of finite groups, a branch of abstract algebra. She is a professor in pure mathematics at the University of Manchester, having previously been the only woman to have been a professor of mathematics at the University of Aberdeen. Radha has won the Berwick Prize of the London Mathematical Society, where she was the first woman recipient since the prize's inception in 1946. The other honors include a Simon's Visiting Professorship at MSRI in Berkeley and an invited lecture at the European Congress of Mathematicians. In our conversation, Radha patiently shared what being a mathematician means. and what stood out for me was how she labeled her emotions as she navigated and excelled in this non-traditional career without further ado let's listen to radha's fascinating journey hi radha welcome to the show hi hi anma thanks for having me when i was doing research yesterday i was reflecting and i realized that you and i go back 45 years that's right from kindergarten vivek school all the way to good old carmel convent in and then reconnected thanks to the pandemic that's right pandemic was great only for one thing and i was to get back in touch with old friends well i remember radha as this soft spoken unassuming very endearing person and this drives me to ask my first question Do you think Radha today is any different from the schoolgirl Radha, which I remember very fondly? No, I mean I think fundamentally I'm the same person. Of course, gotten older, hopefully a little bit wiser. I mean I don't know if anybody really does. Uh, there's this old saying by some Capuchin monk who says, "Show me the child when he is seven, and I will show you the man." Somehow, lots of things are by the time you're. seven according to this monk your personality is sort of quite set so i don't find myself being very different i mean i've learned a few things in life i it would be very sad if i hadn't you know, in 53 years i love that you know that context i knew you were up for big and unique things but uh, was it always going to be math not at all i always liked maths but i liked other subjects as well and i had no particular intention to go into into maths I always had a feeling for numbers and it was very important for me to understand the maths that we were being taught. So if there was some point which I didn't get it used to bother me a lot. But you know, was no way was I planning to make a career out of it. But I mean, I think one of the most influential incidents, you know, for sort of pushing me more towards mathematics was when we were in class 12, I heard about a maths program for high school students at ohio state university called the ross program it's a very old and venerated summer training camp for mathematics for high school or even middle school students and i heard about it from professor bamba mathematician at punjab university and very very good friend of my parents so he told me about this program and he knew very well professor ross who ran the program at Ohio State and so through that connection i spent two months in this dormitory at ohio state university with a bunch of math geeks basically immersed in mathematics for you know 18 hours a day or whatever that did turn on my interest quite a bit and then i came back and i went to punjab university on a school in math but i didn't think of it as being a career Then then after that just one thing led to another. I mean when I was finishing my honor school I just applied, you know, to various American universities then I got into Ohio State and then I was doing my PhD and I said okay let me do my PhD then I'll see what I'll do. And then I happened to get one postdoc, then I got another postdoc, then I got another postdoc, then I got a permanent job. And then at some point I guess I woke up and realized that that's what I was going to do. That's really interesting. Did you always know that you will leave India or was that also just a series of coincidences? 
I guess, I mean, there's an element of coincidence or happenstance in everything that happens with us. I guess I was not hell-bent on leaving India. And I certainly didn't think that I would end up living outside of India, you know, for the rest of my life. But I was very attracted by the possibility of being independent. As a girl, I mean, I felt like in Chandigarh, you didn't come home by 6.30. My mother would be out on the street worried, you know, where is she? And so many times I remember seeing her like standing on the gate or whatever, you know, because I'm a little bit late. And I could understand why she was worried because it was not a safe place for, for a girl to be walking around alone. And just the idea that, okay, if I went to the US or somewhere in Europe, I could go to the shops at eight o'clock by myself and it would be fine. That was very attractive for me. You're talking about a time when there was no internet, when it's not like you could, mom could call you up every single day and find out have you come back home or not. So how did she deal with it? And how did you sort of put them at ease, you know? I think she was sad because I was not there, but they were um, perfectly okay with my going. And I think they knew that I really wanted to go. And, and anyway, it was an opportunity. And the other thing that did help, especially my mother, was because I went back to Ohio State and she knew people there because of the connection with Professor Bamba and some other professors of Indian origin at Ohio State, whom my parents knew. I think she felt that somebody would be watching out, out for me to some extent. I didn't have to struggle to convince them to let me go. Yeah, it always gives you a sense of comfort that there's somebody there watching out for you and that's what yeah, parents yeah, want, yeah. right? Yeah. Rather shifting gears a little bit, first I'm giving you a heads up. I understand people issues more than maths and science, right? And I was doing your research and I was like, this is really not easy to even comprehend all that you achieved. So pardon me if I ask you very silly questions. No, but... <laughs> you won't be silly. So to a lay person, how will you explain your role as a mathematician? how you would talk to a dummy about your role. So I can't really explain the math I'm doing because for that, it's like, you know, like in Western classical music, you have to be able to learn. You have to know how to read the notes before you can do anything. And so mathematics is also, it's a language in itself. So before you can really start talking about it, you know, you have to put in, a bit of a slog to um, learn the language, yeah, the basics. And so, and most people who are not mathematicians, obviously they don't know know that language. Like most people who are not musicians, you know, don't, don't know how to read music. So I guess at some level, you could say that you have the feeling that you are finding the truth and you're uncovering some very deep mysteries. Okay, the universe of mathematics, a lot of that, how that universe is constructed comes from real world problems, you know, but... By the time it gets to mathematics, it's become abstract because that's what mathematics does. So somebody like me, I mean, like uh, in my area of mathematics, we are working in a very high level of abstraction. But the feeling is that there's kind of all these truths that are waiting to be discovered, you know, and then you're discovering those. And so every time you prove a theorem, that's the feeling you have. You know, you think, okay, now you've found something that nobody has ever found before and you've learned something and most importantly you've understood something and I think that's what drives most mathematicians that feeling that oh okay now you understand this. What was the most exciting moment as a mathematician or which really gave you that sense of purpose? Okay so I have to say that for me it's never transcended into this feeling that like this is my mission and I think different mathematicians are different I should say the moments of gratification are few and far between. Yeah, most of the time it's quite frustrating because you're working at the boundaries of your knowledge and your imagination and you have to push them. And that's hard. And most of the time you're running up a blind alley or something and you can realize after weeks or months of thinking about something that A, what you were thinking is completely wrong or B, it's too hard. You won't be able to do it. But sometimes, you know, from time to time, that something works. And then for me, it's like a load off my mind, you know, when I finally see how that thing is going to work and I'm like, I can sleep well and I can relax for a little while. So for me, it just gets to a kind of obsessiveness where I start dreaming about 
some very garbled way about my problem. Sometimes in my dreams, I confuse myself with mathematical object. I think, oh, <laughs> and then I wake up in the morning, I'm co completely confused. Am I a person or am I a linear transformation or whatever? It, almost like when you're running a race or something and you know you're reaching the end point. And then you're like, wow, okay, this is going to happen now. And then it gets very exciting. And I mean, a lot of the work is joint work. You know, I work with a lot of people. I have this one colleague with whom I do a lot of work at a German university. And it can happen that sometimes we exchange 200 emails a day just because we're both on our computers and we're like, oh, this, do you think this works like this? No, 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 it doesn't work like this. I think this is how to do it. And then, you know, it gets so intense. But then there'll be long fallow periods where nothing happens. You know, I go to my office and I just sit there. I mean, okay, I do my teaching, other admin work, whatever. And I can just sit there for five hours and come back home having not made any progress. So, you know, the fact that you said that there are moments of highs and lows. So how do you then keep yourself driven? So I have a very good mathematician friend at the University of Aberdeen, and he's, he's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant mathematician. He once told me that, you know, every time I prove a theorem, I think this might be the last theorem I prove because you never know. It's just that you wake a moment. We all think, well, maybe it's not going to happen again. It's not fully understandable why that eureka moment happens. Okay, one way to keep going is that most mathematicians are not just thinking about one problem at a time. There's several things that you have in the back of your mind. That, oh, you want to try this or you want to try this. So if something becomes too frustrating, you usually either give it a break for a year or a few weeks or whatever, however long, or you never come back to it. It can happen with mathematicians that they, you know, stop producing because like some mathematicians, they only want to do very, very hard things, extremely difficult problems or whatever. And those are obviously the chances of success and those are, you know, are low. And then some just will say, okay, if I can't do these really hard problems, I, I don't want to do slightly less exciting research. But most of us, like myself included, I just do the next thing that comes along, you know. I don't put too much value judgment on whether the question is very important or will give me get a lot of attention or not. If it looks interesting and I feel I have something that I can contribute, I'll usually just think about it. Just trust the process looks like it. That's right. Yeah. And then sometimes like you can have years where yeah, you have papers, but they're, you know, not particularly very important or very good. Maybe nobody will look at them ever. <laughs> or you can have a paper which sits for 10 years without anybody ever looking at it. And then suddenly it becomes important. So it's a very slow process of the vindication. It's like, you just do what you can do. And then maybe it will take, maybe it won't take. And was teaching the obvious path also? Mostly like in mathematics, if you want an academic career, it will be teaching and research to go in hand in hand. I mean, uh, there are some jobs which are purely research, but there are very few of those. So most working mathematicians are, if you want a job at a university, you will teach. And I mean, that's, uh, that's a nice part of the job as well. So what's the most fascinating part of your job? Between teaching and research, I like teaching as well. But I have to say that my... My heart is more towards my research. I get much more excited by my research than I do about teaching. Yeah, I mean, this could be different for different people, but I would say most research active mathematicians would probably answer like I did. Sure. Let's shift gears a little bit, Radha. You grew up in India, studied then in the US, and uh, largely or rather more recently have worked in the UK, right? And I would imagine you've worked with, you know, sort of students and people across cultures. Is there like a common theme which you saw as you navigated all these different themes and nuances? Yeah, very common theme. And I think it's possibly quite special to mathematics and maybe to some other physical sciences. It's unbelievable how similar everybody is that I meet. So like I just moved universities in September from London to Manchester and 
almost nothing changes. I had to report for the first day of work, you know, it was 1st of September. So I took the train up from London. I went to the head of department's office to say, hi, Andrew, I'm here. He's like, oh, excellent, great. Took me to the, you know, secretary, secretary and said, oh, so here's Professor Kesa. Where's, you know, do you have a key for her office? She said, yes. Took me to my office. I opened my computer and okay, you know, it was like I was in my old job. And then I went to tea, to coffee. This is one thing that happens in, well, I guess all academic departments. There's every day there's either some coffee or tea, you know, like, and you just go and you say hi to a few people and you start talking and it's like, there's no change. I mean, you know, they're different people, could be from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, but uh, it's very similar. Any experiences, any anecdotes to validate what you're saying? I guess a few superficial differences. So, you know, if like in India, I would still, so the professors I had at Punjab University, you know, I still will call them professor so-and-so. I mean, for the rest of my life. Say, even if I were to become their colleague, say I was to go back to Punjab University and, you know, get a job there, whatever. Those people would still be professor for the rest of my life here in the UK or in the US, it's all first name basis. So there are these, you know, few um, differences of that sort. Yes, it's true that sometimes students from, I mean, it's part and parcel of the same thing from say India or China, whatever, will be more reverential, you know, towards their teachers and more shy and not put themselves forward maybe that much. But you can get past that very quickly. And you realize that actually people are pretty much the same, you know, wherever you go. One of the very nice things, actually, I have to say about my job, about my career, is that I really like my colleagues. People and I, on the whole, nice to each other. There's not too much backbiting or competitiveness. There is some competitiveness, obviously, but it hardly ever gets nasty. And so you can kind of... Mostly, you know, easy and cordial and meaningful relationships with your colleagues, which I think is not so common in in all professions. Yeah. Having said that, Radha, did you ever experience imposter syndrome or any kind of self-doubt? I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of doubts. And I think they continue to some extent to this day. Um, yeah. So when I started my PhD, I was not at all sure that I was cut out for this business that I would ever be able to do anything. And I felt constantly that I was not good enough. Even after my PhD for, for many years, I had a lot of doubt about myself, about whether this was the right thing for me to do. And I wouldn't say that anything happened to suddenly switch off those doubts, but I think I got more used to just living with them and uh, dealing with them. Now I think much less about those things than I used to. So what kind of doubts, you know, from an academic perspective, I wouldn't imagine that Radha will have those kind of doubts. Oh, yeah. Doubts were all from the academic perspective. You know, that you're just not uh, good enough to ever produce any meaningful mathematics. So was there any point when you sort of rethought about your decision or, you know, thought of uh, running away from it, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I mean... For quite a few years, I just felt, oh, I'm just doing this right now. And maybe I'm just going to chuck it and get a law degree or do an MBA or go and work for the World Bank. I mean, all the time I had these thoughts that I'm just, this is too difficult. It's too challenging. I'm not cut out for it because I don't like to spend 18 hours of my day just thinking about mathematics. I like to think about other things. I like to do other things. and it doesn't seem to me that you can have a career unless you're one of these people who, who wants to just, you know, think about maths all the time. It was actually a constant refrain in my head, but I kept on working. So it was kind of funny. I kept on working and doing what I could. And then at some point, I think they just kind of fed up or whatever of the doubts and I stopped thinking about them that much. And it was totally because, you know, you meet people who are so brilliant that you know you'll never hold a candle to them. Their imagination, their feeling is of a level that you're never going to reach. 
you just have to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, there's so many of my colleagues or whatever who are just, I mean, miles and miles ahead of me and I'll never have that vision that they have. It's like Marcus, my husband, he likes to give this analogy because he he's a mathematician, but he's also a musician. And he's a classical violinist and a very, you know, very serious one. But he says that it's like in music, Maybe there are 20 people in the world who are capable of making a solo career. Everybody knows their name. Uh, say Joshua Bell or Itzhak Perlman or whatever. There are these few, you know, Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello, whatever. So we know the names of these uh, people. And then there's all these other very talented musicians who will be concert masters or just in the orchestra of some, you know, decent, very good orchestra across the world or in some European city or some American city or whatever. And the gap between those guys, the concert master level and the soloists, is just unbridgeable. So somebody like me, who's reasonably successful, like I've managed to survive and become reasonably senior in my role, and I've done things, but then there's the next level of mathematician and it gets very rarefied the atmosphere up there. That's a totally different level. And you have to deal with that, uh, that I'm never going to be in that level. So can I explore a little bit more on this? Yes, of course, as much as you like. <laughs> this really takes me back to rather saying this more out of, I feel modesty and humility more than anything else. No, no, no. I mean, uh, not at all. Not at all. It's just, it's how it, it is the fact. Mm -hmm. Is it that you don't aspire to get there? Or is it that you understand that, okay, this is where I am and I'm good at this and I don't need to go any further? Or that's my capability and I know I can't do more than this. So it's not that you settle. You know, you say, okay, this is my level and I'm going to stay at that level. Not at all. You're constantly pushing yourself. I mean, there are just a few people whose brain is, I don't know, so special. They, they'll see miles ahead of you. And it's, you're not working in any kind of competition. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it just happens like that. And then you read a paper by them and you're like, gosh, you know, how did he or she think of this? Or how did they do it? And how are they wired? <laughs> How are they wired? Yeah. Yeah. Wired? So, you know, yeah. this takes me to an earlier guest, uh, Menakshi, who is a planetary scientist. And as I was in researching her, I also landed up reading about her husband, who is an astronaut and a doctor. And wow. he has gone down to the uh, Titanic. Gosh. I mean, it's insane, Radha. And I then bought his autobiography called The Sky oh, right. Below. Yeah. Yeah. And I started reading it and I totally get what you're saying. You know, you just wonder how are these people wired? This is really interesting. And I love the way you gave the music analogy, right? You know, given that the kind of profession you're talking about, which not everybody would even understand it, right? That's right. So who's been your go-to person? You know, love to talk a little bit about your mentorship journey. I mean, I've been very, very fortunate. I've had very, very supportive and good mentors actually all through. I mean, I think I learned, probably I would say that I learned the value of thinking very deeply about things from my father, because he's an academic. This, you know, importance of understanding something deeply. That I learned from him. Then I mentioned him before, Professor Bamba. He's been a constant mentor from the beginning. So because of him, I was able to go to this Ross program. And, and then because I had gone to the Ross program, I was 15 days too late to join PU. And there, the administrative office didn't allow me to get start the BSc program because they said she's too late. And Professor Bamba, who was actually the vice chancellor of the university at that time, he made a special rule for me to allow me to, you know, so that's the level of support that I got from him. Then, yeah, my PU professors, especially Professor Luther, our common friend Mira's dad, he was the most inspirational teacher, I have to say. He was a math professor at PU, one of my lecturers. Unbelievable. 
and another Professor Parsi. They were very good role models. With them in the classroom, I saw what it is to really love mathematics. And then at Ohio State, my PhD supervisor was extremely supportive. And then even yeah, when I was a young postdoc, there were lots of people who helped me and you know just gave me jobs basically. Rather, are there enough women in the field? And do you think there's enough awareness about, you know, like you yourself said that you didn't know that you're going to become a mathematician. First of all, no, there's not enough women. And there's actually lots of efforts that are made to bring up the number of women in mathematics. And like in many other professions, there's a pyramid. If you look at undergraduate numbers in maths, there may even be more women or, you know, not equal amount of women. And then at every stage, it becomes fewer and fewer and fewer women. And for various reasons, you know, it's a very punishing career. You can't really dictate where you're going to end up. That's one of the big issues with a career in mathematics, because there's not many jobs. So if you say, oh, I've grown up in this part of England, I want to stay here. You can forget it. You might just get a job in Alabama and then that's where you have to go. There's other considerations. It's competitive. It's constant pressure on yourself to produce research. And so by the time you get to, say, professor level, like full professor my age or younger, but I mean, that level of seniority, it's still very low. So, for example, in this now my new department, I think it's a, it's a huge department and I don't, I'm not sure I have the exact numbers, but there is at least 70 maybe permanent faculty and 20, 25 full professors and only three of us are women. So does that bother you? And does that sort of like go into your mentorship journey where you might have motivated or would want to motivate more women to stay the course? Of course, I, I want that. And I see that more senior female around does have a positive impact on younger females. Yeah, is, one needs kind of a critical mass so that there's enough of a population of women for newer entrants to not perceive that there's an extra hurdle to a career just because they are women. I don't very actively take part in mentorship programs. Not because I, I'm opposed to them, but it hasn't naturally happened that much. But I think possibly, uh, you know. Oh, I, you mean I, informally or just informally, maybe informally? Yeah, right, possibly, right. I should say informally. I mean, I, yeah, even formally also, I, I get involved in certain things. But I think actually the informal influence is more long-lasting and has more of an impact. What do you think are the mentorship goals? I mean, there's some practical things, of course, that you do as a mentor. How do you get your first paper published? You know, you advise people, well, try this this journal. Or, and I know this person is on the editorial board. They like this kind of stuff. Why don't you send your paper there? You know, some very, very practical things like that. Oh, jobs. There's a job. I know this person. I've heard of this job there. Maybe you should write to them and see whether they would consider you. Obviously, we all do that. You know, you write letters of recommendation for younger people all the time. I mean, that's that's like, a, I think I do at least one a week at various levels for undergraduates, postgraduates, postdocs, uh, lecturers, promotion letters, you know, le- assistant professor to associate professor to full professor, whatever. Yeah, I mean, but these are, in some sense, they're all part and parcel of, of, I mean, of your job description. Rather, you said you work with a lot of people, right? So is it more peers? Is that more for research? Okay, it's all for research. And I work with all levels of people of at all levels of seniorities. For example, I work, one of my most frequent co-authors is Marcus. So oh, okay. we, we, we write papers, you know, we, I don't know, maybe we have 25 papers together or something. So that's a very senior person. And I have other collaborators, like this German person about whom I said with the 200 emails or whatever, he's much more senior than me even. But then like today, there's a a young female mathematician from Turkey. She's on sabbatical and she wants to spend the whole year in Manchester and talk to me. And maybe we have a joint project. uh, So, you know, spending some time with her. And I also have visiting 
an ex-PhD student of mine, he finished a year and a half ago his PhD. Now he's a postdoc, but he's come for a week just to discuss math, what other pro- projects he could do. I spent my whole afternoon actually talking to these young people today. And so it's at all levels. Were there any setbacks in the journey? And any mistakes you feel where with the wisdom of hindsight you learn? Yeah, actually, I think these self-doubts are a mistake because uh, they don't get you anywhere and they're just a waste of time. I mean, okay, I believe that you should have a good balanced view about yourself, but also balanced set of expectations of yourself. And uh, I do think that I spent way too much time when I was starting out concentrating on the doubts. You know, it would have been better to not worry so much about it, you know, and just been more confident or because they're not really much use for anything, too many self-doubts. Right? What, what are you going to do with it? So with the wisdom of hindsight, how would you deal with it differently? What would you tell your younger self? I would tell my younger self, well, yeah, it's fine. You know, some people are smarter than you, but that's fine. You can live with that. You can still make good contributions and valuable contributions without being, you know, the most brilliant mathematician in the world. Was there any go-to person when you had these self-doubts? Well, Marcus actually helped a lot with that. A lot, you know, because he does not have self-doubts like that. I mean, it's not, he doesn't have a very inflated opinion of himself or anything, but he just doesn't think in those terms. So he does not compare himself to other people. Right. And I think I suffered quite a lot from that. Constantly comparing, oh man, this guy is so smart. I'll, I can never do what they did. And you can actually yeah, do too much of that. And I did it. So And Marcus helped a lot for that. And then, no, I had a very good advice from lots of people. So I can tell you one very funny story, which my PhD supervisor, um, he put everything in perspective. When I was finishing my PhD, I got this job at Yale. And it was with this very, very eminent mathematician called Walter Feit, very famous in my area. And he happened to be the supervisor of my advisor. I was really excited, but I was also really freaked out because I was like, I'm going to go to Yale and I'm going to be speaking with Walter Feit. And then he's going to realize, you know, what an idiot I am. I mean, I won't know how to talk to him. And, uh, I don't know anything. And so I actually went to Ron's office, my advisor, and I was like, I'm not sure I should be doing this because what on earth am I going to discuss with Walter Feit? And then he said to me, and I was really good. He said, well, you know, don't worry about it because uh, Walter is used to being smarter than everybody he meets. <laughs> I so love he, that. He won't be shocked to find out that he's smarter than you. And uh, that helped because I realized, uh, yes, okay, yeah. And then actually it was fine. I mean, Professor Fight was very sweet and there was no issues. Did you have the same self-doubt even when you were in India? Or was it more when you went to the US and you talked about all the geeks? No, I didn't have self-doubts in in school particularly, but then, you know. In university also no, in BSc honours also no. Not so much in BSc honours at all. I wasn't that bothered about that. Yeah, I mean, I, it was not that... It was neither here nor there, really. But so this math program I went to, this Ross program, there already there were people, some of whom now are like, you know, the leading mathematicians of the world who were met there. And already there, it was clear to me, you know, that these kids are, some of them, not all, but I mean, definitely, they're more talented than I am. Yet you wanted to pursue it. You know, when I think about it, Radha, you are saying from BSc onwards, you went there every two months. So you knew the kind of people around you. So obviously there's something which also told you that this is your calling, for lack of a better word. I guess so. I mean, the way I approached it was like in a very piecemeal fashion, you know, I was like, okay, I know I'm not particularly very good, but now I've got this PhD place, I'll go and I'll check it out. You know, and then it was like, okay, well, I'm not that great or anything, but let me at least finish my PhD and then I'll see. So I had enough interest. I enjoyed it enough, I think, to keep going despite all the doubts. Did you come back to your dad and talk to him about all these things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to tell him both my parents, 
really dumb and nice. I'm not doing well at all. That's what I used to tell them on the phone. And so I think they were quite shocked when I actually finished my PhD because like, from the news I was giving them, I think they expected me to be coming back, you know. And that's what they used to keep telling me all the time on the phone. You know, if it's too hard or whatever, just don't worry, just come back home, just come back home. I think they didn't want me to, they thought I might be going into some, you know, that I might go into some depression or something and they want to avoid that. Rather, do you think it's a man versus a woman thing? You know, a lot of women have said this to me that if there's an application and there are 10 things required, a man will see two and say, okay, I think I can apply for this job. <laughs> the woman will see eight and say, no, I think I have to, <laughs> I still don't have I think I definitely a victim of that uh, self, you know, self-made victim of that to some extent. And actually with distance, you see things, you know, when you're not yourself, not personally involved, you see it more. And so I really noticed it. I could see younger PhD students in action. I still remember this time I, the penny really dropped in Oxford and we had a very eminent mathematician visiting the department. And there were some female graduate students and there were some male graduate students. And I knew the two girl women were actually better or at least as good, you know. And But the dynamic between the girls and the boys, if I can call them that, vis-a-vis this eminent person was amazing because the boys, they were just, you know, asking questions and they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. I could tell because I knew a little bit more at that stage. And the two ladies were just quietly sitting there. And then I thought to myself, now, of course, two years down the line, you know, when all these people are applying for jobs and they apply to this guy's university, he's going to remember the boys because they, they were just putting themselves forward. I mean, and it's not they were doing anything deliberately, but... It's just the uh, personality. Yeah. And I think that came from woman versus man. Nowadays, people, it's changed, I think. There's been a lot of effort, both training young women. They get a lot of training now on, you know, not showing diffidence or not putting themselves down. And also, of course, there's lots of emphasis on awareness of unconscious bias and conscious bias. So it has changed. So when I see young women now, I don't know what's going on behind their heads. They don't put themselves down. Right. So rather, I sort of researched around three, four hundred women across the globe. Because when I coach younger women who are aspiring to be senior women leaders, these are the trends which I see. This whole lack of confidence, imposter syndrome. Do I know enough? So a few questions very consistently came out in the survey. They said women have to prove their point, whereas men have to simply state it. Yeah. So what's your perspective on that? And any anecdotes when you experienced this? So I would say, actually, I was thinking about that because I thought we might talk about this kind of thing, was that I would say personally, I got a lot of conscious support and maybe some unconscious bias against. But to be fair to my community, I have to say, there was not too much conscious bias. I have a few incidents where I could tell that the person was not taking me seriously because I'm a female. And the funnily, you know, enough, it's not just from men. Sometimes from women, you get the same. Yeah. So for example, when Marcus and I got together and we got married and then we were looking for jobs together and we got these jobs at Ohio State and he's more senior than I am. So he was hired at a higher level than I was. And You know, he had a much better profile at that time because I was still starting out. Anyway, so we were, I was at a conference and me, as usual, I was talking to a female colleague and I'm like, oh yeah, so she said, congratulations, you know, you guys are going to Ohio State, you both got jobs together, excellent. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, everything, like microcosm of what you shouldn't be doing in a professional context. I was like... Yeah, but I'm really nervous because uh, it's a tenure track position and it's really hard to get tenure. And I don't know if I'm, you know, going to get this tenure. I'm really nervous about that. And then uh, she said, well, don't worry. If they don't give you tenure, Marcus will leave too. So they won't want to do that, you know. Oh, my God. 
it's unconscious. She didn't really, I don't think she was trying to put me down or anything. She was putting but, him on a pedestal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was just perceiving us at the levels we were. So that was with her. So let's say from older men, like, you know, these very old mathematicians or whatever, sometimes I, I got really weird, um, what would now be seen really weird, and nobody would do that anymore. Like, again, when Marcus and I were looking for jobs together, there was another, I shouldn't mention the university, because I, we were both sort of being considered for jobs at a university. So there was the big research university, which was considering us. And then, uh, and there was one guy there who was very keen to hire us, but he was really keen on Marcus. That's all right. And then where he told me, yeah, so well, Marcus can come to the university and then, you know, you can get a job in one of the colleges. So for him, it was clear that as a wife, that's good enough, you know, that my husband gets the job, the big research job, and I'm a supporting role anyway, you know. Totally, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, there are just a few things like that. Yeah. So this reminds me of uh, when Viren and I moved to Chandigarh from Bombay and Bombay is still very different, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, I was running my own business in Chandigarh, my own training company. And he was, of course, heading the Swaraj business, which Mrs. Mohan's husband started, right? So I, in my own right, became a member of the Confederation of Indian Industries, the CII. Uh, the Punjab division and I went for this meeting and I remember this because of what you said there are these young girls who are introducing me and I came as a member she is wife of Viren Popley so I know exactly what you're saying so people are the same everywhere is yeah what I'm people are the same everywhere but it's changed a lot now now I don't think anybody would would say anything like that because everybody's been been trained you know and it's good we've all become aware of things the unconscious bias yeah and so i think it has improved quite a bit i mean one of the funny things that's happened in uh, academia it's really crazy actually now women get overworked like nobody's business because universities and academic bodies are under a lot of pressure to demonstrate d diversity and equality so every committee has to have a woman and then there's not that many women, right, who are in that sufficiently high position. So we all keep getting um, invitations. In, yeah, it's across the board. Like if there's conferences, so you invite speakers, you have to have a certain number of women. So I get way more conference invitations than, than I should or whatever because they think you're stupid or anything no but it's just somehow it helps yeah there's a woman she's competent you know if you put her in the um list it'll look good i remember actually a male colleague of mine told me five years ago uh, we were all at uh this quite prestigious um, research institute in berkeley called the mathematical sciences research institute and they run these long programs where they invite mathematicians from around the world and everybody's under pressure to have women or whatever and this colleague of mine who was an organizer of that he said oh rather i wish we could just clone five of you <laughs> <laughs> more radhas everywhere or yeah, radha everywhere so much easier yeah. <laughs> right 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 oh. so let's shift gears a little bit you know since i've heard marcus's name so much and you share that he's german and and a musician how does it feel to be married to someone from a different culture and i can hear so many layers of cultural journeys you've navigated so yeah let me see i got married from an indian perspective quite late i was 31 and i had already been living for 10 years on my own and in the us and the uk and so I was hanging out all the time with obviously all kinds of people. So there was not that much adjustment. Right, right. To be made. That's how we, we got to know each other was through mathematics. So that sort of then was, you know, that was the, like the... Common thread. Common thread <laughs> and the, you know, the binding thing in many ways. And for example, I got to learn a lot about classic... Oh, no, I still don't know enough, but 
I learned about to appreciate Western classical music because of Marcus. So that was very nice. He practices every day. He plays the violin. So I get a little concert, you know, in the evening every day. How lovely. My mother's biggest issue was, will he like Indian food? That she was so worried, you know, that, oh my gosh, is he going to like Indian But that was not a problem because he absolutely loves it and he can eat much spicier food than I can. So no problem there. Somehow, yeah, you understand that everybody's an individual and we all come with our own packages. And to some extent, you just take people for what they are. Yeah, there are differences, cultural differences, but it's okay. I mean, we are both uh, sort of live and let live. Mm. What does Radha do when Radha is not thinking about the next big theorem and the next big project? I really like cinema. So I try to go quite often and I like to read a lot. So I spend some time reading, hanging out with friends. I got to know about some interesting outdoor activities. So right. Now, another thing that I got into for a while, and that's also because of Marcus, is uh, cycling. Marcus is uh, very much into doing long bicycle rides. So he's been in Alaska. He cycled in the Andes. He cycled across Australia. He cycled across Ethiopia, I don't know, and uh, Tunisia, you know, everywhere in Europe, uh, Norway, Finland, Canada. Uh, So every couple of years, he does like a long trip. The first time he came to India, actually, he cycled from Chandigarh to Leh. And you did it with him? No, I flew and met him there at that time. But yeah, he really started out from my parents' house in the morning in Chandigarh, then got to Simla by night time and then, I don't know, Simla, Manali. Um, and all by himself, alone? Yeah, alone. With all his gear on his bicycle. Looks like after Manakshi's husband, I'll have to go and Google some more about Marcus and his journey. You won't find much. So I've done a couple of very nice trips, cycling trips, long ones with Marcus. One was across from Paris all the way to Tyrol in Austria, so crossing some high alpine passes and then one of the most amazing trips i did was with marcus and his brother we cycled for 10 8 to 10 days in lahore and spiti oh wow through the valley and i think we started in rekong peo and sort of went over very high passes and uh, and then ended up in manali so that was that was very exciting i don't do that a lot now haven't been cycling for a long time, but I started playing a lot of tennis. And I told you, don't ask me about that because actually that's what I want to do now all the time. Right. And Radha, what does Radha plan to do when she retires and if she retires? (laughs) I guess I'll keep doing, if my brain is still working, I guess I'll still probably will just keep doing some research as long as my brain works, I suppose. Yeah, I guess I'll play tennis. (laughs) as long as my body body allows me and um, I haven't really thought about it too much because because there is no retirement in in the reckoning like you said research till you can yeah 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 I probably you know but it'll be nice I mean in some sense because some of my colleagues who have retired they're always uh, telling me oh we recommend it highly because they can spend all their time doing research and they don't have to, you know, do all the other university business. Right. Given that you talk about Punjab University in such high, you've really regarded and stuff like that. So have you ever sort of gone back and mentored the students or gone and given them whatever, shared your... Yes, yes, talks. I've given talks back at Punjab University. I hardly ever go to Chandigarh now because my dad lives in Delhi. But when I do go, I usually visit the department. I keep in touch with some of the people who are uh, who are there, like especially, I mean, she because she's my generation. Uh, the I think she's the head of department there, Gurmeet. So you know, occasionally we have mathematical. Yeah, we have some professional contact. Yeah, interesting. Rather, what do you think are the factors which will attribute to your success? You given that you spoke about so much of self doubt, which was in some level self induced, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. What will you attribute your success to? I mean, now that I'm thinking about these things, there are things that people have said over the years. 
which really make a difference. So for example, another, as usual, coming from my own self-doubts and I was like moaning, moaning about myself. There's no other word. I used to spend most of my time moaning, you know, so dumb. I'm so dumb. To anybody who would hear me, I was like, I'm so dumb. I'm so dumb. I don't know whether I should stay in this business because uh, I don't think I'm cut out for it. Anyway, so, and I was saying this to an older professor at, at Ohio State and and then he said something, and which now I do say to a lot of people, if they talk to me about their doubts, and he said, you know, the only thing you should concentrate on figuring out for yourself, as far as this career of um, research mathematician is concerned, is whether you enjoy it. When you're doing the research or when you're reading or paper or thinking about a problem, do you enjoy it? And if the answer is yes, then stick with it and everything else will, you will see, it will fall into place. So that's one of the main things I think I've fundamentally quite enjoyed. I like this stuff. And then, well, I mean, this is not specific to me or to my profession. You know, there's a degree of cussedness that is required there. Yeah, even if it's hard or something's not working. And I think that's that's about the two things, really. And in research, clearly, you have to keep at it, like, like yeah, you said. Yeah, that you it, have to yeah. keep at it, yeah. yeah. Like another colleague of mine says, I'm really giving very wise words now. He always says, uh, you have to throw a lot of mud at the wall and some of it will stick. And the point is to just keep throwing mud at the wall. So in the end, Radha, since, you know, Atlanta Diaries is a place where, you know, I'm trying to help people learn and unlearn their definitions of success and achievement. Any parting thoughts for young leaders, young women, as they find their own greatness? Yeah, I would say from my perspective, find something you enjoy that gives you joy in the doing of it, because that's what you need for the long haul, right? Everything else is sort of more momentary. Success is sweet, I suppose, no matter what you do, right? We all like to feel good about ourselves. We like to feel oh yeah we achieved something but then you're spending your time for that success say and then it's better spent for you your life is better spent if it's something you really like doing lovely thank you very much Radha this was amazing thank you for sharing all this thanks for having me bye thank you very much for listening all my guests have brought their most vulnerable selves on Atlanta Diaries And even if a small segment of these conversations can help champion the journey of one person, it's going to be really worth it. I do have a request for you. Please share this podcast on your social media and with your family and friends. Our society is constantly evolving and Atlanta Diaries must too. I really appreciate if you can leave your feedback in the form of a review or a rating. These are impactful and rousing stories that need to be shared far and wide. See you next time for another one on Atlanta Diaries.